Merry Christmas, everybody. Can you believe it's here? I mean, uh, this is the 12th of the 12th month, 1920, 2021. <laughs> well, as these offering uh, plates are going past, uh, just a couple of things. One is I want to reiterate what Wayne said about Christmas Eve. Every study and research project that I've ever seen says that more unchurched people will come to church on Christmas Eve if invited than any other time of the year, including Easter. So next week we'll have invitations that will be available. And I want to encourage you, invite someone to come with you uh, to Christmas Eve. Uh, we will sing, we'll have candle lights, we'll have a special children's uh, feature, and we'll worship the Lord. It'll be 50 minutes or so, so we're able to get uh, back home wherever we're going. But if you've got family coming in, or if you've got neighbors and you know they're not involved in church anywhere, it's a golden opportunity to be God's instrument to invite them to come when they are most likely to uh, attend service. And here's the second thing I want to mention, just real briefly. Some of us really um, are not aware of what we need to be giving until the end of the year, and churches are very dependent on year-end giving. So I just encourage you to give thought to making a special year-end gift to God's work, this global ministry through Fellowship Bible Church. We're going to wrap up Philippians today. Uh, we're going to look at a fairly long passage. So go up, take your Bible, grab a Bible, go to Philippians uh, chapter 4. And we're going to look at nine of the most disruptive challenging verses, I think, in all of the Bible. In fact, sometimes I hate it when the sermons that I preach, I'm preaching to myself. And this has challenged me to the core of who I am uh, this last week. So Philippians chapter 4, and I know we've been standing and sitting and standing and sitting, but would you stand one more time in honor of God and His Word? And I want to read from verses 10 through the end of Philippians. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And yet, it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit I have received full payment and more. I'm, I'm well supplied having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. So greet every saint in Christ Jesus. Turn around and just say hello to someone. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. And we're just trying to be doers of the word here. All there is. 
the brothers who were with me greet you, and all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word, and you can be seated. So here are the nine words. You probably saw them in the text. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstance. Who in the world wrote that? And what, what were they thinking? How many of you, just a little survey, how many of you at least at one time in your life passed through a time of real financial insecurity and you just felt like you were barely surviving, just squeaking by? Could I see your hands? Yeah, me too. Me too. I wonder what you, th- I wonder what you thought if someone had said to you, I have learned to be content, whatever the circumstances. I wonder how you would have thought about that. This was written by the Apostle Paul. And about 20 years after Jesus died and rose again, Paul was visiting every population center in the Roman Empire that he could get to, telling people the good news about Jesus, his life, his death, his resurrection, his second coming, and what it means to be a follower of Christ. And one of the places he visited was in northern Greece, the city of Philippi. Philippi was a Roman a settlement, a Roman colony, but it was first colonized by the Greeks. In fact, the father of Alexander the Great, whose name was Philip of Macedon, founded the city of Philippi, and he called it after himself. He named the city after himself, Philip Philippi. Philip of Macedon, Philip, uh, Philippi of Macedonia. So Paul travels to Philippi, he leads people to Christ. He starts this little community of Christ followers that we call the church he stays about a year and a half, and then he leaves. And a year passes, and a second year passes, and then three, then, then five, then seven, and, and then ten. And ten years after he's been here in, in Philippi, he is in Rome. He's in prison, house arrest. He's 60 years old, and he's chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And in those days, as I understand it, in Roman prisons, uh, unless you were independently wealthy or you had friends on the outside, you didn't get anything to eat. You, You didn't get any clothing. There was no medical care, no dental care. And Paul was not independently wealthy. And many times in prison, your friends shunned you because of the shame of you being in prison. So that's, that's his situation. And one day the door opens and a representative from the Philippian church walks in. And we know his name. His name was Epaphroditus. And he walks in and the people at that little church in Philippi had collected an offering and they're sending it to Paul to help him and sustain him while he's in prison. And I wonder what it was like when Epaphroditus walks in the door and holds up the money and says, good news, here it is, Paul. I wonder if Paul teared up at that moment. And it's really a beautiful picture of a church serving and sustaining missionaries. And so Paul writes the book of Philippians. It's a thank you letter for the offering that was sent to him. But Paul wants them to know something. He says, you need to know, thank you for the gift, but you need to know I was okay before the gift came. 
And you need to know that I had peace and I had joy and it wasn't because the money that came. And he embeds nine words in this thank you letter that have challenged me to the core this week. He says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And not only does does he say it here, he says it in a number of places. In 1 Timothy He says, godliness with contentment is great gain. And he says this in 2 Corinthians, for the sake of Christ, I'm content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. And what I want to do is I want to walk through this passage, and I want us to focus on three words, contentment, strength, and trust. Now, what is contentment? It's not just being satisfied with where you are. When you talk about contentment, when the scriptures talk about contentment, it speaks of freedom. Freedom. Freedom to be happy with what I have now. Freedom to be happy in the situation that I am in now, regardless of what that situation is. Freedom from the thought that I'll be happy with the next purchase that I make. Freedom that I live with imperfect people in an imperfect situation, and the freedom is I can live with that, and I can have peace, and wholeness does not come with something that has to happen now on. And what freedom does is it unleashes your heart to be generous, to give. Freedom, contentment frees you to have better dreams, bigger dreams. Contentment just unlocks our heart to a kind of peace to serve God. It's freedom to be generous. Contentment is freedom. And I want us to learn a couple of things about contentment. Here's the first thing. Contentment is not circumstantial. It's not related to the circumstances that we are in. And I suspect that more than one of us has said in our, in our lifetime, once something happens, then I'll be happy. Once this happens, then I'll change my attitude. Once I have a different job, then I'll be better. Once we have a different house, then I'll be better. Once the kids are acting differently, then I'll be better. Once, then. That's circumstantial contentment. Biblical contentment is non-circumstantial. Look at verse 10. Paul says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you've revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. So what he says to this church is, he says, you've always been my partner You've loved me, I love you, you've worked with me in in my missionary work. And he says, but I realized that you lost track of me and you didn't have any opportunity to participate with me. And then verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. And then he repeats it again, verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul says, I've experienced both. I've experienced having a whole lot, and I've experienced having not much at all. And I got to thinking, if Paul lived today, what would he say? How would he express it? I think he would say, I know what it's like to sit down in the best steakhouse in East Texas. And I know what it's like to go two days without any food and my stomach is growling. I know what it's like to fly business class. And I know what it's like to take a Greyhound bus. 
I know what it's like to enjoy a five-star hotel, and I know what it's like to sleep in a seedy motel. I know what it's like to have cash to spare so I can buy expensive gifts for my family, for Christmas, and for my friends, and give to God's work. And I know what it's like to just don't, not, to have an empty wallet and nothing at all. He says, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I want you to look at the screen for just a moment at, that, at one word that's there. It. I don't know what it is for you. It is whatever we want that we think we have to have to be happy. Ask a 12-year-old what it is, and he'll tell you a new video, video game. I don't know what it might be for you. If you're a young couple, you might say a vacation anywhere. It might be another job. It might be a, another position in the company you're in. It might, be another, it might be a raise. It might be a new house. The house we live in is so cramped. It might be new furniture. It might be new appliances. At any one time, all of us have desires. All of us want things. And Paul does not deny that he has desires. It's like he's saying, I desire. It would be nice to be free. It would be nice to be out of prison. It'd be nice to have some things. I may save up, save up and buy them, but I don't need them in order to feel whole and to live a joyful life. Sure, I want it, but I'm not disappointed if I don't get it. I'm okay with it, and I'm okay without it. And by the way, have you noticed when you get it, whatever it is, it doesn't take too long for the new to wear off? How long does it take for a new iPhone to feel like your old iPhone? How long does it take with a new job to find that the people in your new company are pretty much like the people in your old company? How long does that take? Paul says, I am training myself. I'm training my heart to enjoy imperfect people in an imperfect place, in an imperfect situation. Contentment means I am free to be satisfied without feeling like I have to have it. And you say, well, that's the Apostle Paul. I mean, Good night. That was automatic for him. He, he had the spiritual gift of, of contentment. It was, auto, it was easy for him. Was it? Look at the second thing he says. He says contentment is a learned skill. It's something you learn just like you learn to ride a bicycle or you learn a foreign language or you learn to drive a car. There's a special skill that Paul, a special school that Paul had to enroll in, the school of contentment. Look at verse 11 once again. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, but I have learned in whatever situation I'm in to be content. Verse 12, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. It was not automatic for Paul. I think it was just as difficult for him as it is for you and me because remember where he was. He's in prison, house arrest. I wonder how many rooms the house had. Wonder how big was it? Maybe one room. Wonder how big that room was. Wonder what the guards were like that were chained to him 24 hours a day. Wonder if the room had a window. Wonder if the window looked out toward a wall. There's a lot of things that we don't know about Paul's situation, but we do know this it was not comfortable, it was not optimal. And he said, I've had to learn to be content, whatever the circumstances. Martin Luther, back in the 1500s, launched the Protestant Reformation. He said this, next to faith, this is the highest art, to be content in the calling in which God has placed you. I have not learned it yet. Boy, does that make me feel better. Anybody remember Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? 
you know, put the sweater on, take my shoes off. Mr. Fred Rogers said this, the older I get, the more I've come to believe that nothing I buy can take away my loneliness, fill my emptiness, or heal my brokenness. You had to learn that. I once heard a pastor by the name of Jeff Mannion say this, contentment is the cultivation of a satisfied heart. Contentment is not achieved by getting most or everything we want. uh, Contentment comes from training your heart to experience joy and peace even when we cannot have what we really want. Sam, you don't understand. Our teenage daughters run off the rails. I mean, she has made life so complicated. We can't experience peace now. We won't experience peace until she's changed. Well, you may be waiting a long time for that to happen. And do you really want to hinge your peace to her behavior? You want to hang the heavy wire, the the heavy load of peace by the thin wire of her behavior. Say, well, it's really hard right now, Sam. I mean, things are really, really hard. Right now, it's just depressing. We've lost so much. I don't have the strength from it. I don't have strength to do this. You know something? Paul didn't have the strength either. Paul found it just as hard as any of us find it. So the third truth about contentment is this. Contentment flows from my union and my communion with Christ. The fact that when I'm saved, I am united with Christ. He is in me. I am in him and my communion with him. Look at verse 13. I can do all things through him, through Christ, who strengthens me. How many of you have heard that verse before? How many of you have memorized that verse? Remember the context. This is, I appreciate Steph Curry's efforts to share his faith by putting Philippians 4.13 on the back of his shoes. I appreciate when a football player has in the black under his eyes Philippians 4.13. I appreciate their effort to share their faith. But I suggest that's not what Paul is talking about. Paul is talking about not being able to get what he really wants. Paul is talking about living in a situation that is uncomfortable. Because 10 years before this, he stayed in two different accommodations. When he started the church in Philippi, he, uh, he was preaching down or talking to people down the riverside. Just He wasn't standing up and preaching. He was just conversation. And the Bible says the Lord opened the heart of a woman named Lydia, a businesswoman, a seller of purple from Thyatira. He opened her heart to the gospel and she became a follower of Jesus. And so much was he in her heart that she opened her home to Paul and his team, Silas and Timothy. And she lived perhaps on an estate, pretty nice place, living with Lydia in that place. But then his second accommodations in Philippi, he got sideways with the authorities and they took him and beat the snot out of him and then put him in prison and put him in stocks. This is the second accommodation. And he's in stocks, and when you've been beaten on your back and your feet are in stocks, you cannot lie down. So he and Silas decide, according to Acts 16.25, at midnight, unable to sleep, to begin to lift their voices and sing praises to God. Praise from the pit. Uncomfortable. In pain. How do you find the strength to do that? Well, Paul says, I don't have it within me. The strength is from Jesus. I needed help on the outside, someone beyond me. 
It was the presence of Jesus in my life. You know what the secret of contentment is? This sounds trite, and I know it sounds simplistic, but the secret of contentment is Jesus. It's the presence and the power of Jesus in your life. Paul says, there are days when I had nothing to eat in prison, but I have Jesus. He's with me. There are days when I am so cold, my teeth are chattering because I don't have the clothing for this Roman winter, but I have Jesus, and he is with me. There are days when everything in me says, I am so done with this, but I have Jesus, and he is with me. And there are days when all I want to do is be free, but I have Jesus, and he is with me. And friends, when you go through the next round of chemo, he is with you if you're a follower of his. When your home is sold in foreclosure, he's with you. When your family is in chaos, he is with you. The secret of contentment is the presence and the power of Jesus. And Paul's not the only one who knew this. About a thousand years before Paul, King David, who was writing Psalms, wrote the most famous Psalm of all, Psalm 23, where he said, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. The Living Bible says, I have everything I need. In the middle of that Psalm, he says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. You're with me. You're, I refuse to live in fear because you're here with me right now. He's with me. I'm not going to face anything alone. A few years ago, I was really worried about retirement and thinking, well, we, are we going to have enough? And looking at retirement coming and, and that date. And everything I tried did not work. I tried memorizing scripture. I tried praying when I'm laying on the bed and my stomach's in a knot. And I'm worried about how can I take care of my wife and my, myself. And I don't know how to explain this, but one day I was, I was driving and I heard the voice of Jesus, not in an audible voice, it was louder than that. I heard it in my mind. And here's what the word said of Jesus. You will never face anything alone. No promise except his presence. And before God, I tell you, the peace of God entered my heart at that time. I'm never going to have to face anything alone. I don't often... Uh, quote, NASCAR drivers. Jeff Gordon said this, you either focus or you end up hitting something really hard. As Christians, we either focus on Jesus or we end up hitting something really hard. So 2,000 years ago, an inmate, 60 years old, strapped to a guard, said, I'm content. I couldn't do this alone. I have to rely on the strength of the resurrected Savior. He strengthens me to wake up every morning to a situation I do not want to be in and to be a fully alive to God and to the people who are around me in my life. I'm able to, I'm able to take things in stride because of Him who strides along with me. This is not self-sufficiency. This is Christ-sufficiency. It's a beautiful story. Paul gets hauled off to prison in Rome. He's awaiting trial. doesn't know if he's going to be set free. 
he's going to be executed. And on top of that, he tells us in chapter 1 of Philippians, he said, there's all these people in town who are making fun of me and trying to make me feel bad and look, look bad. And in walks Epaphroditus with a collection, with some money. And he, and he is so glad to receive it. I am so glad Paul had wealthy friends. They weren't wealthy. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8 says they were poverty-stricken in Philippi. They gave money they didn't, couldn't afford to give. And that leads to the last word. Contentment, strength, trust. Paul writes back to his friends, and I, I think it's in, on the screen from the New Living Translation. Let's just read verse 14 and on. He says, even so, you've done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Apparently, some of the places that Paul went had teachers who were ripping people off, begging for money, and themselves living in luxury. And Paul did not want to be identified with that kind of thing. So he's not sending this subtle message, you need to give more. He's not doing that at all, which is why in some places he did not take an offering. But the people of Philippi, who were poverty-stricken as it was, continued to send him support. So he says in verse, they re, and, and Paul realizes, and they realize, having money is not bad. Eating at a best steakhouse in town is not bad. It's a gift from God. Loving money is the problem, not money itself. Money is a tool that God gives us to do his work through us. Ministry requires money. Paul understands that. So he's thanking them for what they've sent. Look at verse um, 16. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. He said, I don't want something from you. I want something for you. He says, let me explain. Verse 18. At the moment, and remember where he is, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent with me to you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. He says, Your giving not only expressed love for me and love for Jesus, it is not only meeting needs, it is not only advancing ministry, and he reaches way back into the Old Testament to the idea of sacrifice when they would cut an animal up, put it on the altar, set it afire, and then put some kind of incense on top of it so that the aroma was sweet-smelling to the Lord. And he said, the gift that you have sent me is pleasing to God. He loves it. So verse 19, and this same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches which have been given to you in Christ Jesus. Once again, this is a famous verse, but understand the context. It's talking about people who have given money away. Paul says, you've given me money you could not afford to give. I'm clothed. I'm eating. Thank you. How are you going to be clothed? How are you going to eat? You know, when we give money, we give away stuff. We give away what we could use to remodel a home, which is a good thing, or to repair a car, which is a necessary thing, or take a vacation which is a delightful thing because when we give money, we turn loose of it. It's not ours anymore. And money that we could use and we need goes out of our hand to somewhere else or something else. And so we begin to ask the question, what if? 
I mean, what if there's a downfall in the economy? What if the market goes bad? What if, what if there's an emergency? What, what are we going to do? And Paul says this, your giving unleashes God's generosity to you. He says, you can trust that when you pursue, pursue being generous, you enter into a cycle, a cycle of provision. He says, you give, and then God provides. You give, God provides. You give, God provides. That's the story of Philippians 4.19. God says, I will meet all your needs. Trust me. Which is what the Creator has wanted since He created this planet. That we trust Him. So we ask, can you trust me? Can you trust me that I'll take care of you? Can you trust me that I see your needs? When Ruthie and I were first married, I was 21, she was 20. We had no idea what we were getting into. She probably did, I didn't. We made a decision in the first month of our marriage to do something we really had no sense. Other, we, It really did not make sense to do. A habit, a, a pattern that we decided we vowed to do something, and that was to tithe. This is just my story, our story. And I was, we were entering our last year at college, both of us, and then I was heading on to seminary, and we were making nothing. I mean, it, but we said, we're going to give. And tithing just simply means I'm going to live on 90% of my income, and I'm going to give 10% to God's work. And we vowed to do that. And friends, I stand before you, and it's my story. We never missed a meal. We sent four kids to college. I don't know how. We always had clothing. My testimony is Philippians 4.19. It's true that when we are generous and we open our hearts because of contentment that frees us to be generous, God says, you can trust me to provide. Now, did we make mistakes? All kinds of mistakes. We got into credit card trouble because we thought we had to get this or, or that. But my testimony is, God provided our needs. And notice it says, God will supply your needs, not your greeds. Not your wants. We have what we needed. And He is so gracious that luxuries from His generous hand have been given to us. Vacations we couldn't have imagined provided just out of his grace and out of his goodness to us. Now, why do I say this? It's because so many good-hearted Christians, when they're prompted to give, fall into what I call well-intentioned delay. We don't tell God, no, I'm not going to give, I'm not going to be generous. We use a lethal word, later. I'm just out of college, man. I got college debt. I'm just starting a job. I want to be generous. I want to give, but I just, I'll do it later. And we really mean that. Then I get married and uh, the kids begin to come along and we got 50 diapers a day and we got this house and we got college loan to, to pay back. And I want to give, I really do. I'll do it later. Then the kids are getting married and we're thinking about retirement and not sure what we're going to do with retirement. And I want to be a generous person. I really do. And I intend to do it later. And then I'm 55 or I'm 65. 
and later has meant no. And the delay is lethal. And it was not my intent. And what God is saying here is, can you trust me by being generous, by being content with where you are and what you have because Christ is with you? Can you trust me to become generous, knowing I will provide? There is a supernatural aspect of the Christian life you can't get away from. So what have you heard this morning? Anybody here and what you say is, I, I do not want to be where I'm at right now. I'm in an ugly place. Can you say, with the strength that Jesus provides because he is with me, I'm going to be content. I'm going to learn to be content. I won't get it right first or second or third time, but I'm going to learn to be content. And is there anyone here who would say, I want to be generous I've always intended to be generous later when we could. Um, I'm not sure you ever get to the point where you say, I have enough. That line keeps moving. Do it today. Do it today. Trust God. Whatever he puts on your heart, allow the contentment that the strength of Jesus gives you to unleash your heart to be generous. Have you noticed how quiet it is right now? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. And because of Jesus Christ, by faith, we're going to learn to be content. Not because we have the strength or the power to do it. We don't like where we're at, many of us. We don't like the place we're at. We don't like the people we're dealing with. We don't know what else to do. But many of us are saying right now, with the strength of Jesus, I can, I can be content. And I'm going to unleash my heart, trusting him and his promise. I'm going to unleash my heart to become a generous person more than ever. Lord, I thank you for the McDivitts and the stories that they have told, the living example here of people who are able to go to another place that none of us can go to or will go to. And like the Philippians, we can partner with missionaries around the world. And thank you for a generous church that makes that kind of thing possible. Lord, thank you for speaking to us not giving us information, but renovating our hearts this morning, beginning that process. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.